Thank you, Tim. It is a delight for Sherry and I to be with you in Oil City this morning. Sherry and I have been in this role for a little bit more than a year, and it involves us having the opportunity. There are 45 churches in our region of the district that we have the opportunity to interact with. Uh, Every Sunday, we travel to a different church and try to connect with a different congregation and pastor and family. And uh, that's what brings us to Oil City today. But it's also an opportunity to stand in front of you today and just say thank you for being a part of the team that is the Western Pennsylvania District. This morning, all across our district, in more than 140 churches, 18,000 people will gather under the banner of the Western Pennsylvania District of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And isn't it wonderful that we have the opportunity to together do more than what any of us could do individually. Uh, Together, we are responsible for giving to the Great Commission Fund, which keeps many of our international workers on various fields able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your giving is a part of that. And your prayer support is a part of that. And the ministry that you are having in your community is unique to you. And it may look different than it would in Bradford or Bedford, in Altoona or in downtown Pittsburgh, but your ministries here are vital to being a part of that larger family. So it's a joy to be with you today. Do you have your Bibles? Would you turn with me, please, to the book of Acts chapter 5? Acts, the fifth chapter. And we'll begin reading at verse 12. My sermon today is called at the end of the day acts chapter 5 beginning in verse 12 the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in solomon's colonnade no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell all the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles 
They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. Would you pray with me, please? Spirit of God, would you meet us precisely where we are this morning? In the place where we are emotionally, spiritually. And would you speak? Would you speak words of truth? Words of comfort to our very souls? So that we would know this morning when we leave this place that we have been in the presence of God and that we are leaving changed people. That will not come about because of this sermon. It will not because, come about because of who's giving the sermon, but it will come about because of who you are, Spirit of God. We need you. We confess our need for you today. Would you do your ministry among us? For the name of Jesus is our access to God. Amen. It was October of 1986. True confessions, in addition to being a lifelong Cowboys fan, I am a lifelong fan of the New York Mets. Yeah, someone once wrote that being a Mets fan is 90% scar tissue, and that is pretty much the truth. The Mets, growing up, were a bad team. Sometimes they would lose the first 10 games of the season, and the only reason that they would lose the first 10 was that's the only amount that they had played. If they had played more, they would have lost more. But they were bad. But I was loyal to them. I had watched the Mets with my dad growing up, and I was a loyal Mets fan. And in 1986, for the first time in a long time, they held out hope that they actually had a team that could compete for a championship. And all during that 1986 season, Sherry and I were at Tacoa Falls living in a trailer in Tacoa Falls, Georgia, while I was going to school. We would follow them to the best of our ability. This was pre-internet days. For those of you who have parents under the age, who have kids under the age of 15, you can explain to them what pre-internet days were. And we would follow them, and they were winning games. They won 108 games during that season. And they got into the playoffs, and there were some really good, intense games in the playoffs. And then they made it to the World Series, and we were rejoicing. But then they started to struggle as the World Series started. And when they got to Game 6, they were one game away from being eliminated from the World Series. And they played a really tough game that night against the Boston Red Sox, and they came back from a deficit, and they tied the game. But then in the top of the 10th inning, they fell behind by two runs, And as they came to bat in the bottom of the 10th inning, they only had three outs to go. And they'd be done, eliminated. And then the first guy made an out, and they only had two outs to go. And the second guy made an out, and they were down to one out, and they were going to be finished. And what had seemed so promising was going to be yet another season of disappointment. I confess, I gave up. 
I couldn't bear the thought of watching them lose. And I said to my wife, I can't stand this. And I went down the hallway into our bedroom and closed the door. And I said, that's it. It's over. There have been days in the life of the church where things have started off very promising only to encounter opposition that seems to have the upper hand. And there have been actually moments in time when we as Christians have looked at the outcome and said, I give up. There's no way that we can succeed. There's no way that we can survive under these circumstances in this culture. But the Bible teaches us that I am not to be governed by my emotions of despair. I am not to be governed by anything other than a sovereign God who is absolutely in control of the universe that he created. And when those moments come, there's something that we need to understand, and that's the heart of what we're going to look at in God's word today. Because you see, for the early church, the the beginning of the story was one of incredible success. You you begin in Acts chapter 2 and you see Peter get up and preach his very first sermon and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember my first sermon. It, It had seven points. It lasted seven minutes and no one came to faith in Christ. People were just happy to escape with their lives. I went from Genesis to Revelation. I covered everything in between. I gave them all that I knew in seven minutes. The church started off with a bang. In fact, if you look at the text that we started reading today, go back to chapter 5 and verse 12, and we get a glimpse of the kind of success that the church was having. The apostles performed signs and wonders among the people. Good things are happening. Signs and wonders are happening. People are coming to faith in Christ. But that was followed almost immediately by a time of opposition. And the opposition moved in, and they moved in forcefully. And it seemed as if the opposition was going to win the day. And if you're a part of the church, you may have been tempted to despair and say, well, I guess that's it. But there's something else you need to know. That when the church has started off with success, and they have encountered opposition, inevitably the church has always seen following that an additional season of success, incredible success. But each time that that opposition moved in, whatever it looked like, I think it must have felt a little bit like October of 86. I thought this was really going to be something. This Jesus of Nazareth, I really thought that he was going to be something. And I saw the things that he did. And I saw the things that his followers did. And it seemed that it was going to be glorious. And then the opposition came and the skies grew dark. And people started getting imprisoned. And I guess, I guess it wasn't going to be all that we thought it was going to be. But there in that moment, when it seemed as if all was lost, when it seemed as if nothing could come of it, incredible success followed for the church. I want to take a look at this passage with you today and leave you, I pray, encouraged and hopeful in the sovereign God that we serve. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is the impact of the gospel. 
If you begin in verse 12 down through verse 16, we read about the apostles performing signs and wonders among the people and believers are coming together to meet in Solomon's colonnade. They are meeting in a very public place at the temple. Continuing on, no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. There was a little bit of an intimidation factor. People weren't just waltzing in and saying, I want to be a part of this. There was a high dedication risk required. Continuing on, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So the church is growing. By anyone's metric, that is a definition of success. When the church is growing, that's a season of success, but it gets better. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least if Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Anytime that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it will result in God's power being put on display. That's not something that we hope for. We know that to be true. The impact of the gospel in the book of Acts was that people were coming to experience it, making decisions to follow it, and then they were being healed of diseases. They were having impure spirits cast out. Relationships were being brought back together. There was an incredible sense of God's power at work. And such it is around the world today. Are you aware that today in the nation of Iran, the church is growing at a rate of more than 5% annually? In this country that was so held back from being exposed to the light of the gospel, today people are coming to Christ by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. In a nation that has been through so much war, that has been through so much opposition, the gospel is making a difference. Do you know that in the year 1900, file these numbers away, in the year 1900 in the nation of Africa as a continent, there were 8.7 million Christians. A little more than 100 years later, in that same territory, 390 million Christians. And experts believe that by 2025, Africa will have 600 million followers of Christ. The impact of the gospel. The church in Afghanistan is growing by more than 16% annually. The power of the gospel is changing lives. And you know, because you're Alliance people, you know we could tell stories all day long about the impact of the gospel in countries around the world. We are seeing people come to faith in dark places where the gospel has not previously been able to penetrate. But it's happening because it always happens when the gospel is proclaimed, the power of God Paul says, is being proclaimed. But we could tell those kind of positive stories all day long, but we need to address another issue, and that is the impact of the opposition. 
Because you see, any time that the gospel is presented the way that we just described, you know that we have an enemy who does not want the gospel to be presented, and he's going to do everything he can to try to thwart that effort. And the same thing held in Acts chapter 5. Because if you look at verse 17, we're told that the high priest and all of his associates who are members of the party of the Pharisees are filled with jealousy. You know, here's what I love. Their problem was not that they took the message of the gospel and put it under a magnifying glass and studied it and theologically came to the conclusion that it wasn't true or that it wasn't right. They didn't have any argument with the message of the gospel. Their problem with the impact of the gospel was the impact that it was going to have on them. Because if people started following Jesus, they were not going to be following the Sadducees. And the the word there is jealous. They were jealous of the gospel. The Greek word actually implies that there was a great deal of anger. The, The word is fury. They were furious at the loss of control. Dr. Dennis Kinlaw, who used to be the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, once wrote, that Jesus arrives in the life of the believer as an incredible threat. Because when Jesus comes, he says, I will be in charge. I made you, you belong to me, you are the house that I want to inhabit. When Jesus came to the temple and saw what they were doing in the temple, he cleansed the temple. That's a very safe word. You know what he did? He did a meltdown. He did a nutty. He went in and started throwing things and upsetting things and knocking things over. Why? Why did he walk in there? And the the religious leaders said, hey, you can't walk in here. You're acting like you own the place. And he said, well, actually, it belongs to my dad. This is my father's house, and you do not have the right to do with it as you see fit. This is my territory, and this is what I'm going to do to cleanse what really belongs to me. Some people don't like that, and so they oppose the gospel. The Pharisees and religious leaders were filled with jealousy, and so they did the only thing they could do. They arrested the apostles, and they locked them up in a public jail. Now I want you to think about this for a moment, not at a Christian level, but I want you to think about it at a human level, just a strictly human level. If you're looking at this just through human eyes, and the leaders of this group called the Way, the church, are now locked behind bars, would you not be tempted to say, well, I guess that's it. That's the end of the story. That's, you know, we tried, we gave it our all. You know, we went out, we preached the gospel, but now we have been precluded from going someplace else to be able to do more presenting of the gospel. Yep, the enemy's just got us locked up here in this prison cell and, you know, we can't really have any impact at all. So we're just done. That's a very natural way of looking at it. It's not a very Christian way of looking at it, but it's a very natural way of looking at it. The truth is that sometimes in the church, when we appear to suffer what we would call a setback, when something happens that makes life a little bit harder on us, a little bit more challenging, we have this tendency to do three things in very short order. They are to become fearful, 
to become discouraged and to become frustrated. And something, something arrives on the scene that is uninvited, unexpected, and our typical response, our human response is, I'm afraid. Or I'm discouraged. Or I'm frustrated. I just wish that I had an example of something that has come into the life of the church in 2020 that would be able to fit this as an illustration. You know, something that just caused people to be really afraid or to be really discouraged or to be really frustrated. I just can't think of one. To be honest with you, I'm embarrassed by some of the things that some of my colleagues have written on social media. As if God is limited because of a disease. Well, the, the church can't function if we can't come out and meet on Sunday. Guess what? I talked with pastors who during the course of the shutdown had people in their congregations tell stories about leading other people to Christ. And the church wasn't even allowed to meet. The early church wasn't allowed to meet. They had to meet in the catacombs for crying out loud. And they're exploding in growth. But often what happens to me is I get fearful, I get discouraged, and I get frustrated, and I just want things to go back to normal. And God says, but don't you see? The opposition can't stop me. You can lock up the apostles. You can try to put a lid on the message of the gospel. Please, please don't ever go to bed at night thinking that somehow God in heaven is wringing his hands going, I would so love to see revival break out, but I can't do it because of that guy in the White House. Because God doesn't care. Because it doesn't matter. He is not limited by opposition. The apostles got locked away. For many believers, this is where we go off the rails. When things are going well, we're cool. Isn't God great? When things start not going in the right direction, this is when we get fearful. This is when we get discouraged. This is when we get so anxious and we go, well, I guess that's it. The ball game's over. The truth is that often the things that are perfectly legal that we could do, we don't do. I don't think the problem in our nation right now is that we don't have access to the Bible. We have all sorts of access to the Bible. We just don't read it. Someone asked me, what's the best version of the Bible? I said, the one that you read. We have access to corporate prayer. Most churches don't avail themselves of that. Many people don't avail themselves of corporate prayer. We can gather. It's perfectly legal. No one's stopping us. And yet often we don't find the time to do it. And yet we live in fear that someday someone may keep us from corporately coming together for prayer. It doesn't make any sense. The other thing is that we tend to glorify the opposition more than we glorify God. We, we, we know about the power of God, but we spend most of our time talking about whoever it is that we see as being an opponent. That's who we converse about. That's who we write about. That's who we read about. That's who we fixate on. And we end up glorifying the opposition instead of saying, you know what? Let's just focus on God. Let's just make Jesus the focus of our attention and do what he commands us to do. One last point and then we'll be done. 
We've looked at the impact of the gospel. We've looked at the impact of the opposition. And by the way, there was some impact there. They did lock these guys away. So there was impact. We're not denying that that had impact. But the third point is the impact of God's power. The high priest and all of his buddies lock up the apostles. They arrest them. They put them in public jail. Verse 19, highlight this verse in your Bible. But during the night. Can I pause there just for a second? I love the fact that the verse starts that way. But during the night. Why? Because it's, it's in nighttime that we are most afraid. It's in the middle of the night when everything's dark, when we're down to our last out, when it just doesn't seem like there's any hope. The darkness is the platform on which God does his most spectacular work. It's when everything looks so bleak that God does his best work. For Daniel, it was the lions that were his opposition. For David, it was that tall guy named Goliath that was his opposition. The sports bookies in Vegas would not have given David any odds that he could have beaten that giant. No way. It can't happen. God doesn't care about stuff like that. But in the night, we often do, and we get anxious, and we fret, and fear gets a grip, and we begin to panic, and we think God's not going to show up this time. In the night... When we're fearful, sometimes we think that our only option is for us to solve the problem. We need to come up with a fix. We need to be smarter. We need to work harder. We need to do more. And instead of hitting our knees and praying and saying, Jesus, you are our only hope, sometimes when we get afraid and discouraged and fearful, what we actually do is we take it all on ourselves. We just need to elect the right people. We need to change the laws. We need to get this person or that person appointed to this position or that position, and that'll take care of everything. And what we're really saying is that something other than the power of God is what we need. The impact of God's power begins in the middle of the night. And watch verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them, that is the apostles, out. God just opened the door. I don't think he had a key. I think he just said, come on out. I just think that door flew open and out they came. Don't miss the fact that these were real men with real emotions who were probably quite discouraged and probably a little bit afraid and maybe frustrated because they now were limited in their ability to do what they felt called by God to do. And yet God delivered them and brought them forth. This is where he puts his power on display. The angel of the Lord opens the door and it doesn't end there. Verse 20, God immediately comes to the place of mission. Now, if if I'm God and I release these guys, that's a pretty good day's work, right? And I might be tempted to say, you know what? You guys have had a full day. I just released you from prison. How about you just go out and celebrate, have a good time, take it easy. You deserve it. That's not what God said. God was so focused on mission that as soon as he delivered them in verse 20, he told them what he wanted them to do. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. Now, if I'm the apostles... And I I just broke through the ice and God pulled me out and rescued me. 
And now he says, go back and stand on the ice. Um, can I just, um, can we not maybe tempt fate? Can, can we, I mean, we, we, you know, we went public and we got arrested and thrown in jail. Could we maybe do it, you know, could we start a blog or something and just communicate the gospel a little safer? God said, uh-uh, when you operate in my power, that's not the way to think. You go right back out there into the public and you begin to do what I told you to do. Tell other people about this new life. With the opposition still present, they go back out and they start proclaiming. It seems that in the sovereignty of God, his will is not to eliminate all opposition. You notice that? He doesn't call on us, the church, to eliminate all the voices who are against us. It's almost as if his plan is to use them to make us better, to build character in us, that he uses opposition to advance us at the same time that he advances the mission. And when we do this, when he sends us back out there into the public, this is his promise that he delivered in Matthew chapter 28. Surely I am with you always. How can God expect me to go into opposition territory and deliver the message of the gospel? Simply put, because he's with us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There was a doctor who lived in London. Very prominent man went to a crusade and found Christ as his savior. Now, the doctor had had a reputation for being quite a prodigious drinker. Many times he was not able to do surgery because he had been so intoxicated. And after he got saved, his life was completely transformed. One night, one of his friends who had known him for a long time walked into the doctor's office with a bottle, locked the door behind him, put the bottle on the doctor's desk and said, I need to get this cleared up. Are you telling me that since you went to that crusade and you became a Christian, that if you were alone in your office, you wouldn't reach for this bottle? And the doctor looked at him and said, oh, friend, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is now, since I met Christ, if I were in my office, I wouldn't be alone. Because I'm never alone. How are we supposed to go into the teeth of those who oppose us, who do not believe what we believe and minister the life-giving message of the gospel by knowing that Jesus is with us? Two outs. Nobody on base. Trailing by two runs. Bottom of the 10th inning, October 1986. I've gone to bed. I noticed that Sherry doesn't come in and join me. And eventually I hear her footsteps and she comes in and she says, I think you better get out here. Because with two outs and no one on base, the Mets got a hit and then they got another hit and then they got a third hit. Now it's five to four and there's runners on first and third base. And the Red Sox bring in a new pitcher and he throws a wild pitch and the man on third comes home and now the game is tied and the winning run is now on second base And then a guy by the name of Mookie hits a ground ball that goes right through the legs of the first baseman and the winning run comes around. And what seemed like the season was over 
has emerged with victory. Two nights later, they win the championship. Game seven. And they haven't won one since. I believe that we are living in a time when it feels often as if we are down to our last out. I get that. I'm in churches all the time. I'm talking to pastors all the time. I know what the opposition feels like, and it's very real. We're not denying the opposition, and we're not denying that the opposition has impact. What we must settle on, though, is that it's with two outs and nobody on in the bottom of the tenth that our God does his best work. And we are not limited and we are not behind bars because the liberator of our souls has freed us by his power to be able to do the work that he's called us to do. Many years ago, a songwriter penned these thoughts and I close with this. God has always had a people. Many a foolish conqueror has made the mistake of thinking that because he had forced the church of Jesus out of sight, stilled its voice, snuffed out its life. But God has always had a people. The powerful current of a rushing river is not diminished because it's forced to flow underground. No, the purest water is the stream that bursts crystal clear into the sunlight after it has forced its way through solid rock. There have been charlatans who, like Simon the Magician, sought to barter on the open market that power which cannot be bought or sold. God has always had a people. Men who could not be bought and women who were beyond purchase. Oh, God has always had a people. There have been times of affluence and prosperity when the church's message has been nearly diluted into oblivion by those who sought to make it socially attractive, neatly organized, financially profitable. But God has always had a people. Yeah, it's been gold-plated, draped in purple, encrusted with jewels. It's been misrepresented, ridiculed, lauded, and scorned, but God has always had a people. Followers of Jesus Christ have been, according to the women of the times, elevated as leaders and martyred as heretics. Yet through it all, they march on. That powerful army of the meek, God's chosen people, who cannot be bought, flattered, murdered, or stilled. On through the ages they march, God's church triumphant. Please, please remember, at the end of the day, we win.